I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, it disrupted all aspects of daily life. Many drug developers were forced to suspend clinical trials because of the challenges of bringing participants into medical centers with the risk of infection and the strain on healthcare workers. Palvella Therapeutics, which is developing an experimental therapy for a rare skin condition, has been able to navigate the pandemic and continue its clinical study without disruption, thanks to recognizing the challenge early on and adjusting its study plans accordingly. We spoke to Kathy Goyne, Vice President of Development Operations for Palvella, about its ongoing study, how it managed to continue unimpeded during the pandemic, and why she expects changes the company made will have a lasting effect on how it conducts clinical studies in the future. Kathy, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Danny. We're going to talk about Palvella, your efforts to repurpose a treatment for rare skin conditions. There are about 600 rare dermatological conditions, but less than 2% have an approved therapy. Why is that? They're rare. Um, I think... People with rare conditions historically have uh, felt like they were the only ones. Um, and I, I think in the last couple of years, some of these groups have been able to mobilize and connect and find and connect with each other uh, better than they have before. Um, so we're very fortunate to work with a group that has figured this out. That's, that group is called PC Project. And they have gathered uh, patients and their families uh, with a rare disease called Pachynichia congenita. It took me uh, two or three weeks to pronounce that properly, so I like to say it as often as I can now because I conquered it. Um, unlike our patients who are still struggling to conquer PC, and we want to help them with that. Um, but PC Project has been able to identify these patients and gather them into a powerful community. So uh, the more that these rare people uh, can find each other and connect to each other and then connect with groups like Paul Vela to uh, collaborate and design um, and develop drugs to uh, treat their conditions, you know, that's what it's all about, serving each other. Well, what is PC? PC is a, uh, it's, a disease, it's a genetic disorder. Um, some people present with symptoms um, when they start weight bearing uh, or even at birth. There are some uh, features that appear at birth and other others have a spontaneous um, emergence of the disease. But it is a genetic disorder of the uh, keratinocytes where they produce too many of them. Um, and the part of the disorder that we address is the overgrowth of keratinocytes uh, keratin on the soles of the feet, um, so much so that these patients have difficulty um, walking, ambulating, standing on their feet, doing anything on their feet, uh, causing them to use uh, mobility aids, restricting their activities, um, and even some people are wheelchair bound. 
and does it progress over time? It does progress throughout the life. Uh, throughout life, it progresses. Uh, how is it treated today? So there are no approved treatments um, for Pachynichia congenita. So it is mostly trial and error that uh, people get uh, work with their physicians or even explore some of their own uh, ways of treating and managing. I think the word is the, to, be, to be better used as managed. They manage their disease. They don't ever really treat it. Um, so in management of the disease, there's you know, compounded formulations, there's um, foot care that they do. The most heartbreaking uh, management tool at their disposal is they just don't do things on their feet. Um, and, you know, many people will stay uh, somewhat isolated uh, because of their ambulatory limitations. What's it like to live with this condition? Um, thankfully, I don't know, but we know lots of people who do, and um, it is pain with every step is the resounding um, theme. Uh, pain at night when you're sleeping and uh, not even on your feet, uh, discomfort, itching, um, uh, you know, the pain is the resounding theme. Then there's the uh, psychosocial elements of of isolation and not being able to join in, um, you know, with dancing at, at, at your children's wedding or having a job that requires you to be on your feet for period, you know, prolonged periods of time, cooking a, a meal for your family um, in the kitchen, uh, you know, standing, shopping, things that we do and take for granted um, you know, are major challenges for, for people with PC. Your lead therapeutic candidate, PTX022, is a gel formulation of the immunosuppressant rapamycin that makes use of your proprietary Qtorin delivery technology. What does the technology do? Well, it's proprietary, so I, I won't be able to share too much uh, of the uh, nitty-gritty details, but it is a very elegant drug delivery system to help rapamycin get to uh, where it needs to in the, um, in the layers of the epidermis uh, to strike at some of the root causes of, um, of Pachydichia congenita. Uh, it is formulated by our colleague, the chief scientific officer, uh, Bram Schrute, uh, has been the uh, primary formulator of this um, topical, and he has a 35-year-plus um, experience in the design of very elegant topical formulations. And, and what's the mechanism of action here? Is, is rapamycin working to quiet the immune system, or is it doing something else in these patients? Well, you know, we're in a clinical trial now. So, and the uh, aim of some of our work is to uh, get to answer those questions. But our aim for uh, rapamycin is that it does get to the root cause of the, um, of the overexpression of keratinocytes. Uh, and the mechanism of action is the mTOR uh, pathway that we can inhibit the mTOR pathway and, um, decrease the amount of keratinocytes that, that develop. Um, and hopefully over time, and time will tell, if we are able to um, suppress it completely. You completed enrollment in a phase 2-3 clinical trial of PTX022 on March 6, just as the COVID-19 pandemic was starting to take hold in the United States. What kind of discussions did you have about clinical trial planning and facing 
possible disruptions of the study? Yeah, well, um, we had a lot of them. I'm um, the the first conversation that we had was what what must we do immediately to protect the safety of our cherished patient population, um, our sites, uh, and the the doctors and nurses and assistants who have been working with us every step along the way, our trial monitors, um, our entire team. How do we ensure the safety of our entire team was our primary focus. Um, So we early on, I would say our first meeting about this was on March 2nd. Um, And we, as a a study team, decided to uh, put together a a package that we weren't even sure that we were going to need to do um, to allow us to pivot to some more remote ways of working and have that approved by our IRBs um, just in case we had to move towards more remote ways of working. Little did we know that from March 2nd through March 13th, um, in a short two-week period, this the guessing game that we were playing became very clear that we were going to have to move to a remote way of working. Um, so I'm very proud of our team that we were able to read the tea leaves, if you will, um, and, and and feel like we were going to have to make some pretty broad and, and bold moves to protect our study. You know, because we just finished enrollment, um, we were very committed to maintaining uh, clinical trial progress because we did not want the efforts of our patient population uh, to have been in vain. Um, you know, that most of our, our patients uh, had been enrolled and already more than 50% of the way through the trial, we did not want to have to make this, uh, have this population go through this level of effort again, if there was anything that we could do to protect them. How is this trial different than traditional clinical studies or what you might have had done in the past? Yeah, so we're we're modernists. Um, so from the beginning of the trial, we uh, did implement um, home health uh, visits, uh, and that was part of uh, it. Was two part reason. First was for our patients uh, because of the ambulation challenges with our patients and the um, the lifestyle changes that have to be made to step out of your everyday life, bring a caregiver, and fly to a clinical trial site to participate in a study. There were visits already built into the protocol that could be done by a home health resource. Um, So that was already part and parcel of the study. So we just expanded um, the number of visits that could be done remotely. So I think we had, I don't know, six, seven on-site clinic visits uh, that were required by the protocol. And then we amended our protocol to allow those to be more remote. We felt comfortable allowing that to happen because the lion's share of the patients that would be moving from in-clinic visits to remote visits had already been seen by the principal investigator and the team um, at least once, and for many of our patients, more than one time. So there had already been an in-person relationship established between the patient and the um, and the and the research team. So they already were familiar with the case. Um, so that that was an easy leap for us. 
then because we use electronic systems for um, investigator site file management uh, and a lot of our monitoring um, capabilities could be done remotely, moving to remote monitoring visits was also very easy for us. Uh, because we had already implemented a lot of those um, 21st century uh, modalities for managing data. Uh, we, we did not require sites to maintain physical binders of their uh, site files. They could if they wanted to, but a requirement for our trial was that they needed to maintain those documents in our electronic system. Um, and that was huge for us. We weren't starting at scratch with the, with the sites. Did you need to deploy any digital health technologies or engage any special service providers? So we um, we already had telehealth as an option in the protocol, and then we are using the Zoom telehealth platform, which has I and we learned a little bit more about this than I ever thought that I could learn about. Uh, a telehealth platform, but it's not as easy as uh, firing up your FaceTime on your Apple phone or, or even just using the free Zoom app. There are um, HIPAA compliant features that have to be uh, toggled in the back end of something like a Zoom platform to enhance the um, the privacy and security of the discussions between patients and physicians using those uh, platforms. So thankfully, we already had telehealth as an option in the protocol to allow patients to consult with the sites that way. Um, we just had to do a little bit more um, uh, making sure that we were following all of the requirements in using that telehealth platform when the coronavirus struck. Uh, because people were going to the sites. They were uh, not using the telehealth platform before the coronavirus, but we, we were able to move to it very quickly. Oh, what's it like for the patient? What's different for them? Um, well, they don't have to step out of their lives to go to the clinic uh, for their visit. That uh, The other thing that was important is that our primary endpoint is a patient-reported outcome. So that was a daily diary that the patients completed from the beginning of the study. So one of the big advantages that we had um, from the beginning is that our primary endpoint was not dependent upon the patient being in front of an investigator um, exchanging information. Uh, the uh, the primary endpoint is is done by the patients in the comfort of their own home. So we got a, a an easy win right from the beginning. The thing that's different for the patients is uh, you know they're as we all are uh, using technology um, a bit more to communicate with the sites. Um, so they are receiving uh, drug shipments to their home um and uh taking on a bit a little bit more responsibility in accounting for that drug and uh sharing a little bit more information with the sites um in that way but when you have a, a committed group like ours they've just really stepped up every way you know imaginable um I, they're very happy to uh work with the sites to make sure that the exchange of information about their condition any safety events that they could be having uh the condition of their ip um they've become more partners uh even more so in the process which i think is very powerful and will only in my opinion enhance the quality of the study and how do you deal with lab tests uh, so two parts. We have um, phlebotomists who can go into the home if if uh, certain parameters are met 
Um, it has been very interesting to uh, work with the home health agencies uh, to make sure that they had policies and training um, uh, in their own um, files uh, and demonstrating that training to make sure that people were not inadvertently bringing coronavirus to people who were isolating at home. So, uh, you know, if certain conditions are met, uh, a phlebotomist can go into the patient's home and draw blood and send that blood to our central testing facility for testing. Um, or if the uh, trial participant felt more comfortable going to like a quest or this really groovy place called Any Lab Tests Now, uh, that's simply a blood drawing um, facility, usually located in a strip mall, um, and they're all over the country. This was a very exciting find for us. They'll take any script possible and, um, you know, and draw blood and send it wherever you want it sent. Uh, any lab test now. That's a, a big tip for anybody. If you don't learn anything on this call, that's the one thing I'd want people to know about um, as, a, as a huge advantage. Um, and then, to be honest, for during the intense periods of the uh, of the quarantining, the uh, between April, I would say early April to just about now, there's some visits and some lab draws that simply did not happen. And we were very, very thankful um, and, and appreciative of the FDA issuing a very clear, collaborative, um, realistic guidances um, over this past month about what, how to navigate a clinical trial in the midst of a public health emergency. Their, um, I, we, our entire team has been really impressed with the quality of direction and information that the FDA is making available to us with regard to the conduct of clinical trials. So the guidances I've seen have been kind of open and, and lacking in specificity. What's it like to work with the agency and, and how amenable are they to making adjustments given the pandemic? Yeah, I my opinion is, is slightly different. I think that the guidances have been just really practical. Um, and as long as you know, the, as the sponsor, you are um, you are going through risk evaluations for all of your data points, using and holding patient safety as you know the highest thing that you need to maintain and protect throughout this process. Um, it seems like they've presented a very clear path. First, do no harm to your patients, which has always been the case. Secondly, if there's something that you need to do that you're um, worried about, you know, get to your IRB as quickly as possible and work that out together. And then we're um, getting ready to report all the things that we've done to the agency um, here in the next couple of weeks. So, you, you know, to to us, uh, we, we feel like they've been very clear about how to help um, trials continue going, if you can, um, in the guidances. And that's a collaboration between the patients, investigators, IRBs, sponsor, and FDA. Um, and go ahead. How much contact has there been between the trial participants and the clinical study team? And has it been any different than it would otherwise have been? And is it qualitatively any different? Um, no, we um, it's not. And this is uh, another one of our, uh, I think, our secrets. Prior to uh, the thoughts of coronavirus, our, um, our study team, along with the coordinators, 
have always maintained a high level of uh, engagement and interaction with the patient population. Our coordinators have, uh, have established outstanding relationships with these patients from the beginning. And this was our responsibility. Um, for, for people with Pachynichia congenita, this is the first formal clinical trial that uh, this community has ever had available to them. And uh, our study team with the sites have discussed early and often our responsibility in helping these people uh, participate in a clinical trial and understand and learn, you know, the good, bad, and the ugly of participating in clinical trials. So the communication lines that have been available between patients and the sites were already very well established. And that's going, that's just a regular Palvella way of working. All of our clinical trials will be working with sites that have a high level of commitment to communicating with their, with their patients. Uh, because these are rare diseases, um, a lot of these trial participants have likely not participated in a clinical trial. And part of our obligation, aside from protecting their safety and, and working with them on a new um, treatment option, is to also educate them about clinical trial participation. And that means open and often communication about it. Uh, so we were very fortunate in that it was a tight-knit group between the patients and the sites from the beginning of the trial. So when this pandemic happened, they were not just establishing relationships with people. These relationships were already very well established. What's been the impact on the costs, time, or other aspects of the trial? Do you know well, yet? Yeah, some of that remains to be seen. But our early data is suggesting that... Um, we're going to experience some savings. There, our study required patients to travel, um, many of them uh, using air travel to get to their clinical uh, research location. So now that we've moved to a remote visit structure, those those travel those trips have gone away. Uh, we also supported uh, the caregiver traveling with the patient, so that's two people trap that no longer have to travel. Plus, the uh, monitoring visit travel uh, has been significantly reduced. We have in, invested in a bit more technology, so we do have a platform available for sites to upload their source in a um, HIPAA-compliant manner to enable remote monitoring. Mo uh, some of our trial data is still captured on pen and paper at the sites, and that's going to be the next um, target for us in our next clinical trial, uh, where in, in where we will pandemic proof the capture of source and use an electronic source system. So we've all agreed that that that's going to be our next thing in our next study. Um, but for this program, we were able to work with a partner to establish a um, a room. Uh, electronic room where the source documents could be uploaded and viewed by monitors in a, in a HIPAA compliant fashion. Uh, so there was a, a technology investment there, but again, nowhere near the cost of flying people around for these things. We have invested extra money with the sites, and I always like to make this pitch um, to recognize that they're doing um, a bit more phone calling, um, a bit more uh, uh, increasing their transactions around the data. And we did uh, take some of the money that we've saved from travel and reinvested it in our sites to better support them, understanding that, you know, the things that they have to do have increased. Do you think this will have a, a lasting 
impact on how you conduct clinical studies beyond the pandemic? Absolutely. So, you know, I've already talked to you about uh, pandemic proofing. We will be pandemic proofing every single trial for the rest of my career. That will be a topic that will be part and parcel of every trial design that we do, that if we need to... um, you know, move, uh, change the way that we're working on a trial, how difficult is that going to be? Um, As well as, you know, just implementing more of these 21st century um, ways of working and and helping all of our um, our trial team sites, patients embrace some of these these options that have been around for quite a while and help integrate them into clinical trials and make them the, the new normal. Um, yeah, so we will we will always have a line item in our plans, our project plans about pandemic proofing. Kathy Goyne, Vice President of Development Operations for Favela Therapeutics. Kathy, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure, Danny. This was a very interesting times. Thanks for uh, asking us to talk about the topic. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.